welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer shares with us the beginning of a mini-series on prayer. This comes from the 14 characteristics of a healthy church. Our talk today starts in the book of James. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. starting a brief series on prayer, just a few message series here. As we're talking through Acts chapter 2, we looked a long time ago, several months ago, at what's the 14 characteristics of a healthy church. Now, when I say 14 characteristics, you know this isn't going to be a three-part series. Okay, so 14 characteristics, and each one of those characteristics, if you will, is going to be a mini-series. And so right now, we're, we're going to be going over the fact that in Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. It's one of the basic things that a church does. We express our trust and our faith in God through prayer. So... If you open up to James chapter one, verses two through eight, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. You're like, radio guy, what is, <laughs> what's that about? When I was a little kid, the toy to have, I mean, from when I was really, really little, was a G.I. Joe. Now, not just this bugger right here. I mean, I had like the big one that's like the size of an iguana. You know, these real big guys. Do you remember those, anybody? The old-timey G.I. Joes. Came with a backpack, or like a jetpack and a tent and all kinds of fun stuff, but you can only have so much fun. There's only like four of those guys. When they made them this size, you could fit all kinds of them in your pockets for recess, and you can play G.I. Joes out in the playground. And so what we would do is at a friend's house or at the playground, we would gather all of our Joes and there were only about like 10 of them back then before they had, you know, bright colors and pets. You know, they had these G.I. Joes and they're all wearing just drab green. And we would divide these guys up on teams like you're picking out a, a kickball game. And so we would look through and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take M60 machine gun guy. And so we'd take him, you know, this big Rambo type machine gun. And this guy goes, oh, I'm gonna take a bazooka man over here. You know, I blow up tanks and I'm gonna take the guy with the mortar shells. And, and so we would just kind of divide up. Do you know who was always <laughs> the last one picked? Uh, me, no, but the last one picked was always this guy right here. Can you tell why? That's radio guy right there, okay? <laughs> no boy wants to play with the radio guy. We know what to do with Bazooka. We saw Rambo, right, you know? And so we know he can wipe out whole platoons with the M60. We know what Bazookas can do. We were watching the A-Team in the 80s, okay? So we know what Bazookas can do. I want Bazooka, man. Radio guy, we didn't know what to do with this fella. Uh, his code name was Breaker but he didn't break nothing, okay? He's, you know, everybody else, they're out in the front lines and they're shooting things up. And I mean, he's back behind a rock, you know, sipping some chamomile tea. <laughs> Let me know when you need help, guys. I mean, the only weapon on this guy is like this grenade that's like permafused to his chest. I mean, he can't even take that guy off in battle if he needed to. And so he just had a radio. He didn't even come with a gun. I didn't know what to do with this guy. So he, he, we perceived him to be the weakest guy there. You know, we sort of got bad luck if you just kind of threw the last guy in and radio guy in for free. But as mature adults, or those of you who have served in the military, especially those in World War II and such, you know the importance of radio guy, don't you? Uh, if you will, the most important guy on the battlefield there, why? Because Mr. M16 machine gun guy is one guy. Mr. Bazooka man is one guy. The guy who holds his finger on the button of the radio, what can he do? 
he can call in the entire armed forces and might and power of the United States Army in. Little kids don't see that. They just see Radio Man. Okay? But we, as adults, we understand the importance of that. In a very real sense, when we pray, Christians, it's an admission that we're not Rambo, M60 machine gun guy. We're not even bazooka guy. What are we? We're radio guy. Okay? We don't have lots of power. We don't have lots of strength in and of ourselves. We're still in a battle. That's what the Bible says. But where does our strength come from? My, my strength comes from the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, the Bible says, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're radio guy. When we get into trouble, what do we do? We hit the button of the radio and we stay connected to headquarters. And that's what prayer is. And to a Christian, prayer can still feel a little weak, can't it? I just want to get out there and do something. I want to teach something. I want to serve something. I want to fix something. I want to work at it. I want to do something. And sometimes what God wants us to do is sit behind a rock with a chamomile tea and pray. Put our finger to the button of that radio and, and connect with HQ. So this morning, I hope you already found your way to James chapter 1. James is a fun book. For a lot of Christians, this is their favorite book of the Bible because it's wisdom literature. This is the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's, there's not a lot of heady doctrine outside of the faith and works discussion. There's not a lot of heady doctrine in James. It's just, it's straight up, it's simple, it's easy to digest. Uh, we understand it. We get James. James is Jesus' half-brother, the guy who wrote this book. We say half-brother because they shared a mother, but did they share a father? No, they did not. And so uh, Jesus' father, if you will, is God. And so James also had a nickname. Don't know if you know this. Jesus' half-brother had a nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees. And no, he wasn't born with like some birth defect. Uh, they called him Camel Knees because his knees, if you will, he was always praying. He was always on them. And so they knew of James, Jesus' half-brother, as a man of prayer. So they called him old camel knees. And so this is the kind of guy that I want to hear from today who knows what it means to spend great, a great deal of time in prayer. And so in James chapter 1, as we look at it, it's going to be a bit of an unusual, unusual lead-in to prayer, but I want you to see that this, what I'm about to share, is in the context of prayer. You're going to see that it's why often we pray. So number one, we're going to see we pray when we're in trial. You and me, we're, a lot of us, we're like a dog squeak toy. If it just sits in the corner, it doesn't make any no noise until your puppy gets a hold of it, you know, and it squeezes. And a lot of times for us as believers, we don't pray, we don't make a noise to God until we get squeezed. We're just, oh, help me, God, you know. And we're just, we're just calling out to God out of the desperation and the pain of our heart. And James acknowledges that. So before he leads into this message on prayer, he acknowledges, friends, here's quite often why we pray and understand that God is the one who sends suffering into your life so that we'll pray, so that we learn to trust and to rest on the power of God and not just trust in ourselves. And so we pray because we're in trial. He says in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He begins by talking about trials of various kinds. It's a Greek word that means multicolored, that God has a whole variety of different trials that he sends our way. 
And it's not always gonna be equal, is it? Your trial is not gonna be the same as her trial. Your trial is not the same as his trial. We all go through various types of trials at various times. If you've ever noticed that God isn't fair, he doesn't make things equal, he doesn't believe in equity, equal outcome for all people. We don't all go through at age five, we have this trial, age 17, we have this trial, age 35, we have this trial, and we all go through the same ones. It's a variety of different trials, they're various kinds. But sometimes we don't like that, do we? Peter didn't like it. Remember Peter? denied Jesus three times. Jesus takes him out uh, after Jesus rose again, and he takes him out onto the beach, and they catch fish. They have a fish breakfast. He lets Peter reaffirm three times that he does love Jesus, and then Jesus tells him how he's going to serve him, and he tells Peter the kind of death that he's going to die on behalf of Jesus. Now, mind you, this is Peter, if you will, the leader of all the disciples. How do you think the leader of all of Jesus' disciples is going to respond when Jesus says, Peter, you're gonna suffer greatly for me. In fact, you're gonna die for me. Do you know what he does? He spins on his heels. Hey, what about that guy? <laughs> what about John? Is he gonna have to suffer like I suffer? Anybody remember Jesus' response? What is it to you what I do with John? You follow me. We can't hold God to a standard that I should suffer this much and no more because this believer isn't suffering that much or that we see. God gives us trials of various kinds. He customizes trials for each individual believer. It's to test our faith. It's to see if your faith is real. Unless faith is genuine, or unless faith is tested, we can't tell how strong it is. I mean, automobile manufacturers do this all the time. You can boast that your car is strong and powerful and will take a hit. What do you wanna see? You wanna see consumer reports. <laughs> you wanna see someone else do some independent study of this vehicle. And they'll take these cars and they'll put two, a mommy and a daddy crash dummy with a baby crash dummy in the back and they're, what are they gonna do with the car? They're gonna run it into a wall. And they're not just gonna do it one time. On average, they do like, I think nine different crash tests with vehicles, they'll hit it from the front, they'll hit it from the back, they'll hit it from the side, and from the other side. Then they're gonna roll it over, and they just do all these different crash tests. Why? Is it because these men just enjoy breaking cars? A little. But the reason they're trying to do this is because they're trying to reveal any weakness that might be in the car so we can fix it. Or it's trying to show that this car is indeed strong so you can trust it. This is what trials do in the life of a believer. It's to reveal weaknesses in us so that we can fix it. Or it's to reveal areas where we are strong that we can help others in as they're going through trials. So James says, count it all joy. In other words, there's nobody here who goes through a trial who says, boy, that was fun. I can't wait, hot dog, this is gonna be great. Uh, it's, we don't immediately respond with a cheerful spirit that we're going through a trial. He says we have to count it all joy. It's a, it's a word that means to reckon. It means you choose to believe something even though your, your, your feelings and emotions are saying something else. I know this is good for me. Boy, it's really hard. How can we have that attitude to count it all joy, to reckon it, to choose to believe it's good for me when my heart and spirit is saying, God, please get me out of this now? It's we have to have a higher perspective of why we're suffering. We have to understand that suffering, because it comes from God, it has a purpose. He says in verse four, 
He talks about let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, he says that steadfastness comes from going through trial, that God has a purpose in our pain. God doesn't just say, well, you're sinful people. Enjoy the punishment, wicked kids. God doesn't just give out you know, punishment and pain for no reason. His goal is that he will produce steadfastness in us. Steadfastness is a word that just means to remain up under pressure or pain or difficulty. That a lot of times when we get pain, our first response is to jerk away from it. You stick your finger in a light socket, okay, and we, we jerk away from it. We touch something sharp, and we jerk away from it. We try to avoid pain. This word means to remain up under. It means you're under pressure, you're under stress, you're under pain and difficulty, and you bear it, and you don't change as a person. You're the same person whether you're under trial or not. That's what we call steadfastness. Steadfastness means that you are, you are remaining the same person whether things are good or whether things are difficult. That's when you know you're mature. Who you are under trial is who you are. You're not just actually an actually good person when things are good. I'm sorry, he's just having a bad day. No, that's what it is, is that trial didn't make you act that way. That trial revealed a weakness. It was God putting two crash test dummies in your car and running into a wall. He wants you to see areas where you're weak. Who we are under trial is who we are. Now, is that difficult to hear? It is for me, because when I'm under trial, I don't always count it all joy. I don't always behave the same way. Sometimes I let the trial get to me, and I can become a different person. I'm not steadfast. I try to avoid the pain rather than leaning into it and staying faithful to God. Because when we go through pain, what's our first knee-jerk response? Let me pull away from everything. Pull away from my wife, pull away from my kids, pull away from church. I'm certainly not going to God. I mean, God brought this into my life. I'm not gonna go near him. I'm not gonna love and worship God. I'm not gonna sing praise to God. I'm certainly not gonna give. God gets no tip from me this week after what I've been through. That's our knee-jerk response. And friends, can I tell you with all the love I have in my heart for you, when we behave that way, that's an immature response. It's not steadfast. We haven't remained faithful under pressure. And so what God did is he ran us into a wall and it revealed a weakness in us. I'm not steadfast, I'm not the same person under trial or outside of trial. And so it shows an area that we gotta work on. And because without it, if God doesn't run our faith into a wall, we all think we're strong, don't we? We all think we have great faith until bad things happen. Or as the great prophet Mike Tyson once said, Everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth, you know? And so you guys are gonna quote Mike Tyson over lunch, aren't you? But that's, that's how it is. Every Christian thinks they're strong until they get hit in the mouth with a trial. It's what Proverbs 24.10 is talking about, right? When Proverbs 24.10 is talking about if we faint in the day of adversity, you know, we collapse, we fall over. He says, your strength is indeed small. When I was a kid reading that, I was just kind of looked at that proverb and said, well, yeah. <laughs> you know. But what he's trying to show us is, is that most of us, we don't feel like we have small strength. Most of us would probably feel like we have pretty strong faith, pretty big faith. How do you know if you have real big faith or not? Let God run your crash test dummy into a wall and let's see how you do. 
if you faint. In other words, if you, if you back down, you're not steadfast, you, you become a different person, you fall apart, your faith disintegrates because you're going through trial, it reveals you weren't as strong as you thought you were. You're not as mature as you thought you were. You weren't able to be steadfast and to remain up under trial. And so when God gives us trial, he's producing steadfast in us. He's teaching us to remain the same way under trial. And so he gives us increasingly difficult trials so that by the time we're done, steadfastness will have its perfect work in us so that even if we're going through persecution and even if we're facing death like Job, we can declare boldly, even if he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is steadfastness. Everybody in your life has turned on you saying, Job, why are you suffering? Even his own wife said, curse God and die. When you can be under trial and you're just as loving to God and you're just as loving to your wife, you're just as hardworking, you're, you know, the money you give to God doesn't change, the service you do for God doesn't change, it's an evidence that you are steadfast, that God has had a perfect work in you through trial in making you a strong Christian. Understand this, the only way we can believe this and reckon this to count it, to consider it true, is to understand that these trials do come from God. Does God send us only rainbows and unicorns or does God send us difficulty? He does both, doesn't he? I can give you one of many different verses. I'll give you this one. God was talking to Isaiah in uh, chapter 45 and verse seven, God told him, he says, I form the light and create darkness. He says, I make well-being when everything's going well. And what else does God do? He creates calamity. He says, uh, I, the Lord, am the one who do all these things. Does it bother you that God himself creates calamity in your life? Does that bother you? It might affect the faith of some but it's supposed to affect your faith so that you understand that any trial that I have in my life, understanding that God is the author of that trial, you know that you're simply going through a crash test. There's a limitation, there's a backstop to how much you're gonna suffer. And that that suffering has a purpose. God is trying to reveal to you and I in that rollover test of life. He's trying to reveal to you and I where we're weak so that we can be made perfect, or as, as James says, perfect, which simply means complete, it means mature. God wants us to bring us to the place of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? Your mama read it to you when you were a little kid growing up. Joseph, he grew up and he was kind of daddy's favorite and so all the brothers hated him. You know, had the coat of many colors. And his brothers conspired to kill him. One of them got a conscience and said, nah, we can at least make a buck off him. Let's sell him to a slaver. And so they did. And so he gets sold into slavery and he's so faithful he is steadfast, he's in trial, he's been sold out by his family, he's living in a foreign land, and he is so faithful, he rises up to the place where his master trusts him, gives him to the key to the house, if you will. But then his wife accuses him of immorality. Didn't happen, but she accused him of it, and he got put in jail. But he was so faithful even in jail, he was steadfast to his God, that he, he rose to the ranks of trust in the jail, so that if you will, he was Otis Campbell and Andy Griffith, or you, who's with me there? You know, he's got the keys to the jail, he can let him in and out if he wants. I mean, he's trusted with everything. And then eventually, you know, some guys get out, and they say, we're gonna remember you, Joseph, do they? No, they forget him. But eventually he's called upon 
by the Pharaoh himself, tell me about these dreams. God gives them the revelation of these dreams and he saves, if you will, the world from starvation and hunger. And Joseph, at the end of his life, because he was steadfast, could say in Genesis, in chapter 50, in verse 20, he says, as for you, brothers, he's talking to his brothers now, it's kind of the end of that story. As for you, you meant evil against me. In other words, God is not the author of sin. You are still responsible for the sin you did, but don't be overly hard on yourself. You did mean it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive to this day. The reason Joseph was able to bear up under is because he understood God and his sovereignty was working him through trials in his life and that this trial is gonna have a purpose. And I may not see what the end goal of that is by God, but I trust God that whatever trial I'm going through, it's for my good. That's what it means to count it all joy, to reckon something to be true. God wants us to get to that place of Joseph, to just trust God. Number two, when we pray, we pray because we need God's wisdom. Verse five, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, when do you usually have a Christian pulling this verse out of his back pocket? When he's making a big decision. You know, should I go to this school or this school? Should I do this career or that career? Should I marry this girl or this girl? You know, well, James says, ask of God and he gives you wisdom, and that's, and that's true. But in context, can I share with you what he's really getting at here? What did he just get done talking about? Trial. And now he says, now, if you lack wisdom for how to get through this trial, ask of God. Through this trial, let God squeeze you like that dog toy, right? And squeeze out those prayers from you. And when you do, ask God for wisdom. If you were here with us on Wednesday nights, you understand some of these different terms the Bible uses of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge is an awareness of what's right. Wisdom is a Hebrew word used for skill. It means you know how to do something in life. You know how to take this knowledge and use it and apply it and do something constructive with it. Understanding means you know the reason why, why that's important. It's like when your kid, when he's 14 and they take a driver's test, anybody? They take a driver's test and they get that sideways driver's license and that permit, and all of a sudden your kid knows all the rules of the road and they start pointing out all the things that you're doing wrong. Uh, Daddy, you did not uh, hit your turn signal 200 feet or whatever it is. I don't even know. Uh, you know, before the stop sign. And so, Father, you are in error. You are in violation of, of code. You know, they start getting all Barney Fife with you. Tweet, you know, code 104.5-7. You know, you're in violation of that code. And you're looking at that kid going, you don't have a clue about driving. Who are you preaching at me for? You know, so they, they have knowledge. Do they have wisdom? Do they have skill? No. So you say, okay. Midget, you know, sorry, I shouldn't use that term anymore, right? Uh, little one, let's trade spots and let's see if that knowledge is any good to you, you know? And so we look at their knowledge and what do they do? You, you, you see that you're driving a manual transmission. That kid's like, all right, so take that and put that in your book. Preach at me about my turn signals. Your kid lacks skill. He doesn't know how to use the knowledge that he has. That's wisdom. Understanding is understanding why. It isn't just that we follow rules of the road for right-of-way because, uh, because somebody just created some random rule. Why do we have right-of-way? It's, so it's so when we pull it to an intersection, we don't get confused as to who's to go first and we hit each other. That's understanding. It's the moral reason why we do these things. So we're to ask God for wisdom, not just help me make a good decision, Lord, 
This is God, give me the strength and the wisdom, the knowledge, the skill to know how to endure this trial well. Because when we're in trial, that's exactly what we want and that's exactly what we need. We need God, God, give me your wisdom. Help me know what the right step in this trial is. So if anyone lacks wisdom, who's anyone? Do you lack wisdom? You're scaring me. You lack wisdom, so do I. He says if anyone lacks wisdom, he's not implying that there's some of you here who are so smart you don't need God's wisdom. He's saying only the people who understand that they lack wisdom are gonna seek it from God. So anyone who lacks wisdom, he says that we're to go to God and ask for it. And God, he says, gives generously and to all without reproach, it will be given to him. This word generously, it's the opposite of to give miserly, you know, like, a, like when, when I bring McDonald's fries home and my dogs, when we used to have them and they'd want my fries, I'd give them just enough to leave me alone. It never works. But, you know, I, I want to give them only as little as I have to. Just stay out of my face and let me enjoy my McDonald's. God doesn't give that way in a miserly way. Just give you enough to keep you, keep you quiet. It says God gives, he says, generously. It's a word that means bountifully. It literally means without duplicity. God isn't giving you something to get something from you. There's, there's no strings attached to the grace and the blessing that God gives us. We ask God for wisdom, and it says he gives it to us bountifully. He gives it to us because of who he is. And he says he gives that when we, we pray to God. He says God gives us without reproach. It's a word that means to scorn or to chide. God isn't gonna scorn us. Now we go to people and ask them for things. Sometimes they'll scorn us, won't they? Hey dad, can I have 20 bucks? What'd you do with the last 20 I gave you? Okay, you know, there's a little bit of chiding, a little bit of scorning there. You know, and sometimes we can take that into our relationship to God, can't we? You go to God and you ask him forgiveness for something you've done, a sin that you've done, and maybe you've done it before, and you're kind of like, why do I even bother going to God and asking forgiveness again? You know, you just feel like, man, I'm just, God hates me now. God says he gives without reproach. He's not gonna scorn you. God, would you forgive me for this thing again, even though I asked for the forgiveness for that 15 times last week? He's not gonna be like, why do you even bother asking anymore? That's not our God. God, he says he gives generously. He's happy to answer our prayers. He's happy to forgive. He's, he's quick to give us wisdom to how to endure trial. That's our God. And so uh, it says that uh, number three, let's just jump down to that. We pray to demonstrate our trust in God. Look at verses six through eight. It says, when we pray, it says, let him ask in faith, because that's what prayer really is. It's a demonstration of our faith. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says, but let him ask in faith. Because again, faith is the greatest out, or prayer is the greatest outworking of our faith. When we trust God, we pray. When we don't trust God, what do we do? We trust in ourselves. So in my prayers to God, it's, I'm basically, when I'm talking to God, it's God, I trust you. God, I trust you. God, I trust you. That's what our prayers communicate to the Lord. And so if we remember uh, Hebrews 11:1, 1, what is faith? Could you give somebody a good working definition of faith? 
You can if you can read Hebrews 11.1. 1. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, in the definition of faith, he says that faith is the evidence of things not seen, that there's this deep, settled assurance and trust in God. Even though, anybody here seen God before? Any of you touched God? Any of you guys hang out with God, shoot pool with God, go on walks? Okay, you don't physically hang out with God, do you? But we can know God, and we can trust in a God that we've never seen. That's what faith is. And when we have faith, we pray. When we don't have faith, we don't pray. It really is that simple. We pray in faith. Let him ask in faith without doubting. When we pray, we pray believing that God hears. We believe that God is strong enough, and we believe that God will answer. And we believe and trust God that he's going to do what's best for us. That's what it means to pray in faith. We don't treat prayer like a lucky rabbit's foot. They even sell those anymore. When I was a kid, they always had those. I wanted to buy one. I didn't know what it was. My mom wouldn't let me buy it. Uh, lucky rabbit's feet are those things. that it, it goes all the way back to the Celts, and they used to believe that rabbits, they spent so much time underground that somehow underground they communed with the gods. And so they believed that rabbits were lucky, so you'd carry body parts of rabbits. These Celts did, these occult people. And so that tradition is carried over for a lot of people. Now, do most Americans actually believe in the power of the rabbit's foot? No, not too many of us. You know, you'll have it, and maybe people will rub it for good luck, but they don't really believe it's going to do much for them. But they thought, well, what can it hurt? Can we do that with prayer? Where we don't really believe it's going to make much of a difference, but I'm going to rub that rabbit's foot and pray just in case, just in case, just make me feel a little bit better. That's how we can treat prayer sometimes. It's not praying in faith. Faith, by the way, what are we having faith in? That we are assured of the outcome? Can I tell you, no. When we pray, do we know how God is gonna answer that? No, because we're not sovereign. And sometimes Christians, even in Christian bookstores, we can get some theology that's a little iffy. <laughs> you'll see on the plaques, I've mentioned this often, but you'll see it on the plaques, faith is not believing God can, it's knowing he will. And that sounds really great on a plaque and a bumper sticker, but that's, that's not what we're communicating here. Faith is not faith that we know or are assured of what God's going to do. Faith is an assurance that whatever God does, it's good. Our faith is not in an outcome that is going to take place. Our faith is in the God, okay? Our faith is in Him. Our faith is God is sovereign, God is wise, God is good, God is just, and I'm gonna pray for something. Hopefully I'm praying in concert with His will, but I leave the outcome to him because I trust God. That's the prayer of faith. It's not that if you just believe in something strongly enough that it's gonna happen. If you don't believe in it strongly enough, it won't happen. At first glance, we may think that that's what this is talking about, let in faith and not be doubting, being tossed to and fro like the waves. But that's not at all what we're saying here. Uh, is it possible to have a lot of faith in God to not give you the outcome you wanted? Yes. Can you give me an example? Yes. <laughs> so it helps when you prepare it ahead of time. I know the answer to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven. Would anybody here say that the apostle Paul had strong faith? I would. I mean, look at his life and what he endured for the Lord. Paul prayed about something three times, and do you know God said no every time? He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. There's something painful in his life. The Bible doesn't say what it is. 
He says, it's a messenger of Satan to harass me. It didn't originate in God, but God is gonna use it. He says, and it was put there to keep him from becoming conceited. He was able to count it all joy because he understood the outcome of that suffering. But he kept praying. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He could have well said, I don't want you to be the guy with the bazooka. I want you the guy with the radio. He says, therefore, Paul says, I will boast more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions, and there's that word, calamities, again. How could Paul endure this suffering well? It's because when he prayed, even though he wasn't assured of the outcome, he was assured of the God of the outcome, that whatever you do, God, I know it's gonna be good. This trial I'm going through that I'm praying for, it's not gonna change who I am. It's not gonna shake my faith. I'm gonna remain the same person I was to begin with. You see, in prayer, and we're gonna talk more about this probably next week, in prayer, It's not about us manipulating God or changing God or changing God's mind. In Bible study and in prayer, when those come together, it's God changing us. It's God changing our will. Like Jesus taught in Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Change me, God, to line up and to sing in harmony with what you're doing. A lot of times, unanswered prayers aren't because God is unable or unloving. When we have a lot of unanswered prayers, a lot of times it's because we're asking wrongly ourselves. We're, we're praying for the wrong things. It's like your kid when he's praying for a BB gun for Christmas. You're like, no, no, you're gonna shoot your eye out, right? Every mom had that. You know, and he's praying, you know, hey, I wanna, I wanna please, as a little kid, I always wanted Chinese throwing stars. I thought it'd be fun to be like a ninja. Mom would never give them for me because I was asking a miss, okay, as James would say. And that's how we pray to God sometimes. God, give me Chinese throwing stars. And he's like, no, you're gonna hurt yourself. Uh, I'll give you what's good for you though. And when I became more mature, I can look back and say, yes, thank you God, that my mom didn't give me Chinese throwing stars as a child. I would have hurt somebody. But as an adult, I can see that. And now I'm in concert in harmony with what is good and healthy for Heath. But as a little kid, I'm too immature to understand that. As I mature in my faith, I understand what's now good for me. I understand what I should be praying for. And so I begin to pray within the will of God. God changed me, it's not that I changed God. That's prayer. And you know when you're walking closely with God when what you pray for is what God wants for your life and guess what, that's what he was gonna answer anyway. And so in a very real sense, when we have a lot of answered prayer in our lives, it's an evidence to you that you're praying for the right things. That you're praying in concert with the will of God. That your desires, his desires rather, have become your own desires. So what is James talking about when he says, let him ask in faith without doubting? You'll be tossed like the wave of the sea that is driven, tossed to and fro uh, by the wind. James is talking about that when when you have weak faith in God, you're easily moved. When the wind is blowing strong, what, what do you look like? You look like this, okay? When the wind is calm, you're calm. So when life is good, I'm calm. When life is rough, I'm rough as a person. He says, that's what a a double-minded man is like. When life is difficult, you get crazy. When life is good, then you can be peaceful. That isn't what the Bible 
calls steadfast. It's not, what, it's not biblical maturity as a believer. Maturity as a believer means that I can go through, that the, the winds may be doing this, but I can still be flat. I can still be calm. Because the God who says, peace be still to the wind and the waves is still my God of this situation. And he can calm my heart, even if the winds and the waves still crash around me. Remember, uh, in Hebrews 11, where we talk about this definition of faith, I always love using this as an example. When we talk about the definition of faith, later on, it gives you lots of examples because he knows we need object lessons. And one of those object lessons was in the book of Daniel, you have those three men in the fiery furnace, you know, in the golden book of children's Bible stories that you read as a little kid about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the name we could never pronounce. And so we have these three men and God, this King Nebuchadnezzar says, bow before my golden statue. When the music plays, everybody worships me. And everybody did. The bad guys, you know, the Chaldeans, and even the Jews who were living there would bow, except for these three men. And he says, fine, I'm gonna throw you in the fiery furnace. And their response to him wasn't that they knew what was going to happen. Their trust was in God. They said, our God whom we serve, in Daniel chapter three, verse 17, He says, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. Aha, they knew. Now, what does he say after that? But if not. They allowed for the fact that what they desire, not being burned alive horribly and die a horrific death as a piece of charcoal, you know, what they desired may not be in concert with what God wants for them. So they trust that God's power is able. They believe in their heart that he will, but they don't know. And so they're leaving it with God. But what do they say? They remain steadfast. They don't change because their circumstances changed. They're steadfast. What do they say? But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image that you have set up. That is steadfast. We will not change just because trial came into my life. That's Christian maturity. That's how God wants us to behave. If if we do vacillate, and we, we are that guy that whenever a trial comes into our life, I become a miserable person to be around. It's a demonstration of our immaturity, and I'll tell you why we're immature. It's because our faith in God has been rocked. When we allow trial to change who we are and how we behave, it's, it's evidencing the fact that we still don't trust God enough. He says that that person is a double-minded man. It's a word that means literally double-souled. It's like Christian multiple personality disorder, okay? Uh, That that at one point in time when life is good, you're Dr. Jekyll, and you look very composed and put together, and you're happy, but then trial hits, and then you turn into Mr. Hyde, and you're just miserable to be around, and you're mean to everybody, and you backbite, and you hurt, and you yell at the kids, and you kick the dog, you know, and you just become this different person. And we, get, we kind of excuse it and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just under a lot of pressure right now. And I get it, we've all been there. But where does God want us to be? He doesn't want us to be double-minded, literally double-souled. He doesn't want us to be Jekyll and Hyde Christians, that I'm happy if God makes everything good, but if God seats me next to a crash test dummy (laughs) and he runs my life into a wall, then I'm gonna turn into a different person. I'm gonna stop going to church. I'm gonna stop being loving. I'm gonna be mean to my wife. I'm gonna yell at my kids. At that point, God has revealed through trial, my heart is still double-souled. One day I'm trusting in the nature and character of God, the next day I'm trusting in myself, and I'm mad, I'm mad at God because he brought bad things into my life. 
He's revealed that in our hearts we are double-souled. He says we're unstable in all our ways. You're unpredictable. You might be happy one day, you might be mean the next. Which person do I wake up next to? You know, your wife's thinking, who am I waking up to this morning? Is it gonna be a happy guy who loves the Lord, loves me? Or is it gonna be a mean guy who, you know, who scorns me and treats me poorly? We don't wanna be double-souled people. It's not, a, it's not an evidence of maturity. We're not steadfast, bearing up under and remaining the same kind of person under good times and in bad times. And that's how Jesus was. Was Jesus steadfast? When things were good, Jesus was, you know, everybody wanted to be around him. And he was healing people, he was feeding people. But was Jesus still a loving person as he was uh, in, under trial, literally under trial? He was still steadfast. He was still the same person. He was loving. Even if you crucify Jesus, is he still going to be the same person and loving? He'll say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus, while these men are killing him in the worst possible way, he's praying for their souls. That's steadfast. While he's on the cross and suffering, he could be thinking about how his throat is so dry, he can't even open his mouth barely to talk. And yet, with the words that he can utter, he's like, John, take care of my mom. He's thinking about other people. That's steadfast. When you can learn to minister to others amidst your pain. There's a lot of people, if you notice there's a lot of people hurting today, there's a lot of people you're sitting next to. Every single one of you has brought together uh, to this church a collection of pain. And some of us are gonna respond one way and some of us are gonna respond another way. Some of us are gonna sit back and wait and go, well, let's see if you're a loving church or not. Is anybody gonna come and meet my needs because I'm hurting? Hello? Is nobody saying I'm hurting? Call yourself a loving church. But what we don't realize is the very person that we hope will come love us is also hurting. So what can we do as believers? We acknowledge that we all come in here with hurts and my, our hurts and pains aren't the same. These are trials of various kinds. And even though I'm hurting, can, I still, can God still use his grace to work through me to comfort someone even while I'm suffering? That's the only way you can do it. There's nobody who ever comforts you or helps you who isn't hurting themselves. The only way we're gonna take care of one another is to look beyond our pain and say, God, I trust you with that pain. You're gonna bring someone to help me. Instead, I'm gonna, when I come to church, I'm gonna focus on finding the pain of somebody else and helping them. And then lo and behold, what happens? Hey, God has now led somebody to me to help me in mine. And that's how the Christian body is supposed to work. We help one another, we encourage one another amidst our own pains. That is what that faith looks like. We're not double-minded, we're the same person in trial or outside of it. If we are double-minded, what does he say about our prayers? Let not that man expect to receive anything from the Lord. When trials shake our faith, so I no longer trust in God, no longer rest in God, I'm not even praying in concert with his will, these prayers go unanswered. He says, you're an unstable person. You haven't learned to be steadfast yet, so no wonder your prayers aren't being answered. You're asking later on in the book of James, he says, he says, you ask uh, and receive not because you ask amiss. It means to ask wrongly, that you may consume it on your own lusts. Sometimes we just pray for the wrong things because we want something different for our life than God wants. He says that person is unstable in all their ways. I won't go through all of it right now, but Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 about a persistent widow who keeps banging on the door. Help me, nobody else can help me. And Jesus says, this is the reason I'm telling you this parable, that we ought to be just like her. 
that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart, to be like that lady pounding on the judge's door. Give me, give me, give me, only you can help me. He says, that's how you ought to pray. We keep banging on the doors of heaven. That shows faith to keep banging on heaven's doors in prayer, even though I haven't seen an answer yet. How long should I keep praying? Pray until one of two things happens. Pray until God either answers your prayer with a yes or no, or God changes your heart. Pray until God answers or he changes your heart. That's how we pray fervently, how we pray consistently, how we pray in faith. We go to God and we just, and we just let him know we trust you. We go to God in prayer because that demonstrates faith. It's acknowledgement that I'm not the strong guy. I'm not the frontline guy. I'm not the infantry guy with the M16 or the M60 or the bazooka or the mortar and all those other G.I. Joe accoutrements. I'm radio guy. I'm the guy who is weak, who has a grenade glued to my chest that I can't even pull off if I wanted to. I'm the guy with a radio on his back and nobody else sees the merit or power or value of this, but I do. And God, I'm gonna have my hand to the button of the radio and I'm just gonna call out to you because I'm going through trial, because I need your wisdom, because I need you to help me to work through this so that I trust you, so that ultimately I can be steadfast. The same person under trial is when all things in life are good. God, help us to pray that way. Father, as we close this morning out in a word of prayer, God, it's my sincerest desire that as we go through trial, and we all do, that we would be the one who at times even just squeaks out the, the weakest prayer that we have. It's my desire, Lord, too, that each one of us will grow in our maturity with you, that we could be steadfast, that we could remain the same kind of person under pressure, or outside of pressure. That we can be a loving person when we're hurting and a loving person uh, when things are good. Lord, that can only come through faith. Believing, God, that you're, you're the one who has the, the finger on the buttons of calamity, the finger on the button of suffering and difficulty. God, we fully trust you. And whatever you bring about, God, through this trial, we trust you. When we have that kind of resolute faith, Lord, I, I pray that others will see that there's something unique and different within us, a, a, a strong and resolute faith in a God who is in control of all things. Oh, Lord, may we be a church that prays, a church that trusts you and rests in you in faith, a church that's not resting in its own strength and trying to just grow and expand our own numbers for our own hubris, but God, that we would, we would pray your will be done whatever you want to do in this church, whatever you want to do in my home, whatever you want to do in my own heart, God, may it be done. I pray that you would see that faith in each one of us today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.